Morning, everybody. Well, if you don't know me, my name is Ben, and uh, not sure how I ended up here this morning. I'm kind of sure, but uh, we got Oli, who's gone in Canada. We've got, uh, shoot, we've got Ed Morphus, who's out sick. We've got Randy, who's out sick. What else we got going? Brian's in a beauty pageant. <laughs> Why are you laughing? Why are you laughing? No. We wish, we wish uh, Brian the best of luck in that. And uh, so they're kind of wondering, you know, well, who are we going to put up there? So they, you know, they turned to 1 Corinthians in prayer, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and they read this verse. It's kind of a prayerful decision. Chapter 1, 26, it says, For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. And so they said, we should probably call Ben. That's, that's, what they, that's what they said. So lower your expectations today. Um, happy Father's Day to all the fathers out there. Give yourself a clap. I've kind of noticed that uh, being a father is easy to become. Not something easy to do, right? And so I look back on things like circumcision, you know, there was a lot of people, uh, Israelites that were circumcised under the covenant of Abraham, and these people were circumcised, but Paul said in the book of Romans, if you're not walking faithfully, if you're not walking after the ways of your father Abraham, your circumcision has become uncircumcision, right? I think I look at that a, a little bit like fatherhood. You can be circumcised or you could become a father just as much as you could be baptized to be a Christian. But unless you walk in those ways, you may not be a true father. It says about discipline in the Bible that if God does not discipline you, you're illegitimate, illegitimate sons. Right? So fatherhood, while it's easy to become a father, we have to make sure as fathers to be good fathers. We have to make sure that we fulfill a role that is fitting to be a father. So to all those bad dads out there, this is for you. <laughs> for all those good dads out there, uh, we're always striving. I don't accompany myself. I mean, I know, you know, I'm a dad, but we're always striving to become something, something better, right? And being a father is not subjective if you're a Christian. Being a father in the world is subjective because you live up to the world standards of what a good father might be. But for being a Christian, you want to live up to what being a father means being a Christian. And there's really no greater example than our Heavenly Father. So I'm going to go over four things today. I'm going to go over uh, four points. Usually it's three points, but today it's four. I'll make sure I have my clock out here just in case I go a little crazy. We're going to go over our Father's character, our Father's relationship, our Father's discipline, and our Father's faithfulness. There's a lot to be said about God, and it's not a short topic. So I'm hoping that these four cover a large uh, portion of what God is, how He relates to us, how He deals with us, and how faithful He is to us. And so the first place I want to go uh, is Genesis chapter 1. I'm not going to really read a lot of this. A lot of it's going to be kind of um, ad-lib, so to speak. But Genesis chapter 1, you guys know it, every day God ended, he said, and it was morning and evening, and it was the first day, the second day, and God looked at all those days, and he looked at them, and he saw that those days, he said that those days were, that what he created on those days was good, right? And so when he created everything, 
him being a good father, he created everything to be good. He, all the created elements, the, the hierarchy of creation, the relationships that we have to one another, right? All the animals, everything was in order. And he did that before he brought man on site. Man was to be his son, right? And we see that in God's good order is good. And then he brings a person into the world and sets them in that order. And if we're going to be good fathers, we have to make sure that we create a good atmosphere for our sons and daughters, right? We have to make sure that their surroundings are good, right? And even after creation fell, he comes to Moses. And let's look at uh, Exodus chapter 34, And for the first time in the Old Testament, God reveals what his name means. And I'm going to go to chapter 34 and verse 5, and it says, Now the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there, that is, he was standing with Moses, and he proclaimed the name of the Lord. Right? This is what God's name entails, right? This is what what it means. And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful, gracious, long-suffering, abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin. Right? He's a forgiving, good God. And really, it's kind of funny because when the Egyptians were were hot after Israel coming out of Egypt... um, they were at the Red Sea. The Egyptians were coming to kill Israel. God made a way. They got out, and God allowed the waters to come back and flood the Egyptians. And Exodus chapter 15, verse 3 says, The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. And most of us as men, as fathers, are like, Yeah, we're men of war. You know, it's really awesome. And we try to be macho and all that good stuff. But if you look at Exodus chapter 34... Our Father is first merciful, gracious, patient, right? Those are the qualities of our Father. And, and if you read in verse 7, it says, "...is by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and on the children's children." He's not just a good God. He's not just a merciful and patient God. He's a God that doesn't put up with nonsense. There's a balance there. That's His character. And he had enough of the nonsense of the Egyptians, didn't he? He closed that sea in on them. Let's take a look at 1 John chapter 4, and we're looking at the New Testament now. 1 John chapter 4 and 7, it says, Beloved, let us one another, for love is of God, and everyone who loves God is born of God and knows God. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. And that's the first time, I mean, in Exodus, God really, he proclaims the name of the Lord. He tells you who he is, a merciful, long-suffering, patient, kind. Where does that come from? Who is God kind of in essence, who in essence of his character, kind of what, what is, how is God to be described? And, and John wraps it up, God is love. It doesn't say that God is loving, It doesn't say that God discovered love and he's just like, wow, that's something I should do, right? God is love. And it's because he is love that he created everything good. 
That's why he's merciful. That's why he's patient. That's why he's kind, right? That's why he doesn't put up with nonsense, right? He cleanses the palate when it needs to be cleansed and says it's done and puts you back in a right understanding again, right? Let's take a look at this, this love. Uh, we're going to go to, I don't even know if I wrote that down. We're going to go to Deuteronomy chapter 6. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, uh, we, we see what's called the Shema uh, to the Hebrews, right? And the Shema is a Hebrew word just means to hear. And every day they would read this. Every single day they would read this. Every single day they would proclaim this because it was something that was to be a part of their daily walk. And as fathers, it should be a part of our daily walk, right? We know who God is. We know that he created a great system. We know that he's merciful, long-suffering, kind, uh, long kindness, etc., but let's take a look at verse 4 in chapter 6 of Deuteronomy. It says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And we know that Jesus says about the law from these two uh, commandments, namely, love God, love your neighbor, all of the law and prophets hang. Everything that he prescribed to Israel hung from those two things. And so daily, Israel is professing this. And look what it says in verse 6. And these words with I, which I command you today shall be in your heart. Put them down deep. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them. When you sit in the house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. As fathers, our whole goal is to bring kids up in the admonition of, of the Lord, right? And so here we see really God's character starting to point outward to what a father is supposed to put on and teach his children, right? And so in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 6, 16, he says, Be holy for I am holy. Imitate me. Be holy, for I am holy. As a father, set yourself apart. Be of good character and pass it on, right? And so God's character is not subjective. We can't make God what he, we want him to be, right? But we've got to listen to what the word of God tells us, the word that he wrote, and understand what his character is. What, who is he? Like we've talked, you know, I, I thought by... You know, we had a preacher that I thought was kind of crazy. He was a uh, Marine Corps um, medic, went into, uh, he was a psychiatrist uh, back in the 70s down to some of the mental institutions and stuff and was psychologist for a long time, um, counseling pastor. And I kind of was, I kind of raised up under this guy as far as counseling is concerned. And this guy said, you would not believe how many people compare their heavenly father to their own earthly fathers. And I thought, nah, nah, there's no way. But it's true. It's honestly true. And whether you intend to or not, whether you're an earthly dad or not, your, your children get some sense of their creator from the way that you act. That's scary. <laughs> it's easy to have a kid and then you're thrown into this position 
where they're going to judge God by the way you treat them. So important to have that character, to have that understanding of who God is, and to be able to instill that understanding in them and hope to God that they're gracious enough to grant you the ability to still be human, right? So let's look at our father's relationship to us. Is it scary, right? What is our father's relationship like to us? And let's go to Romans chapter 4 for that. We've all got shortcomings. None of us have transcended to perfect fatherhood, I don't think, quite yet. Some of our kids are older, and we know that we didn't do the best job. But there's no reason why we can't start now, right? And part of that is understanding the relationship that you have to God. You can't give someone a relationship that you don't have yourself with God. If you don't understand what your relationship like is with God, and you don't understand the value of that relationship and what that does to set you free to grow, you can't pass it on to anybody else, right? Let's take a look at that in uh, chapter 4 of Romans. And it says, uh, 6, just as David also describes, and David, keep in mind, was in about 1,000 B.C., so he's probably 1,060 years or so before Paul even wrote this. This is in the Old Testament that David is describing this. This blessedness of the man to whom the God imputes righteousness apart from works. And we're talking about our father Abraham, 2500 BC, okay, where Abraham believed God and God accounted that for, for him as righteousness. God, because of Abraham's faith, decided that he was going to impute righteousness to Abraham, a righteous standing, and form a relationship with him that no one else had with him. Once he accounts you as righteousness, you have a different standing before God at that point. And so here's that blessed righteousness. Look at, look at chapter 4, verse 7. It says, blessed are those who lawless deeds are forgiven. When you come before God in faith, he forgives everything. Every lawless thing that you did, he absolutely wipes it off the table. And whose sins are covered, blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. That's your standing with God right now. And, and so many people get for, forgiveness all messed up. They, they've got it every single day. Oh, God, please, please forgive me, Lord. I screwed up yesterday. Please forgive me just one last time, and I'll do it right this time. And the next day, you're like, oh, I screwed it up again. Please forgive me, Lord. And we never have any indication in that position. We never have any indication that God's forgiven us. So we live under this guilt constantly that I'm a screw-up, and I'm never free to grow. But that's not what God is saying here. The man that's living in God's grace, he's saying, blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin, meaning anything you do wrong, God says, I, I refuse to write it down. And our prayer, I'll give this as an, as an example, our prayer should not be, Father, please forgive me today for the things that I've done. It should be, God, I messed up, right? I did these things wrong. 
Help me tomorrow to become a better man. Help me to become tomorrow a better mother, a better Christian, right? A better son, a better, a better daughter, a better friend, a better employee, right? And here's the key. Thank you for your forgiveness. Thank you. Because in him we're free. And a lot of people would go, I can't be in that kind of relationship because that just gives, gives me license to sin. If I know that I'm in this perfect standing with God and he's not going to write down my wrongdoing and hold it against me, I need to be held accountable. Well, he'll hold you accountable. Don't worry about that. But you're not in a relationship where you have to beg to be in a right standing with him. That's not what he's like. And so the Romans had the same accusation posted to them by the Gentiles which is basically like, hey, if you take on this doctrine of grace, if you say that God has forgiven you and he's not going to write down anything bad, he's not going to write down and, t- and, and keep an account of everything that you're doing, then you can just go do whatever you want, right? And that's what Romans uh, chapter 6 says. Paul addresses that point. In chapter 6, verse 1, he says, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? That is, why don't I just keep on, since his, his grace covers all my sin, the more I sin, the more his grace abounds, If I really want to make God look gracious, I should go out and just do a sin spree, right? Because God's going to just overbound that with grace all the time. It's just going to be this overbounding grace. I can make God look good, right? (laughs) That's not the way it works, right? Our hearts should not be that way before him. And if, if our hearts are that way, we don't know him. We don't know him. If we don't love him like that, we don't know him. And that's what Paul says, right? In Romans chapter 6, verse 1, What do we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Or do you not know that as many as us were baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? Right? God, in baptism, through faith, grabbed you and he killed you. And we're not to feel sorry for that person. That's the old person. That's the old Ben. That's the old flesh. God, I stand with you and I condemn that old man. Help me walk in newness of life. Help me walk in this relationship of grace with you. Imagine if as fathers you treated your kids like that. You didn't account every single little wrong that they said, every single little wrong that they did. You just called them in a relationship with you every day. And as the character of God, be holy for I am holy. You took on the character of God and tried to be the best vision of him that you could be. That's all you have to be with them. It's a free relationship and watch them grow, right? That's the relationship that we're in with him. And so in Galatians chapter 5, In verse 16, Paul gives us a a command, and he's actually calling us to liberty here. I'm going to back up to 13. It says, for you, brethren, have been called to liberty. You haven't been called to a relationship with God where you're begging for forgiveness every day, where you're under all of these requirements. We're dead to the law. We're dead to anything that ever came out of this world. We're dead to it. And we're walking in a new life. And God has not prescribed a list of do's and don'ts for you as a Christian. He's called you to a walk of liberty. That's the relationship that you have. And if you screw up, it's okay. Get back up and let's go. That's what he's saying, right? 
Verse 13, you brethren have been called to liberty. Only don't use your liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love, serve one another. Have that be your focus. If that was your Shema every day, right, is to say, love God with all your heart, mind, and soul, and turn around and teach your children the same way, to do that every day, love one another. For the law is fulfilled in one word, even this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And so here's our, here's our marching orders, literally. In chapter 5, verse 16, he says, I say then, walk in the spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust in the flesh. And this, this word walk here is a military term where he's saying, keep cadence with the spirit. When you have the drill sergeant that's saying left, right, left, right, and he's got the whole, everybody's marching left, right, left, right. That's exactly what Paul is talking about here. Listen to the Spirit. Keep in step with him. Who you see God to be, be that to people, right? What you see him doing, do that for people, right? Let's check out uh, John chapter 13. Wow, I am just cooking the time here. Better move on. And 34, 13 and 34, and this is something that they could not do before this time because the Spirit had not been given, but the only new law Jesus really has for the new covenant is this in chapter 13, 34, a new commandment I give to you. That would have been blasphemous to the Jew who lived under the law of Moses. Can you imagine anybody under the law of Moses standing up and go, I'm going to give you another commandment on the top of the commandment of Moses? They would have been like, I don't think so. That's why this is a new covenant with a new spirit, a new relationship with God. In 34, he says that you love one another as I have loved you. I don't want you to love your neighbor as yourself. I want you to love them as I have loved you. And that's the empowerment of the spirit if we keep focused on him that's the empowerment of the spirit we you guys all know the spiritual fruits in galatians right fruits of the spirit let's go there real quick galatians i have a list of these scriptures after the sermon if you want that in 22 it says uh, chapter 5 verse 22 says the fruit of the spirit is love joy peace long suffering sounds a lot like exodus and the proclamation of the name of god doesn't it Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. Could you raise your kids like that without law? Love them. Guide them. Right? And so we have the Father's character. We really need to look into what that looks like because it doesn't look like your dad. It doesn't look like my dad. It doesn't look like the best dad reward given to the best dad on earth that the world could give a dad. It doesn't look like that. It looks better than that, right? We need to investigate what the character of God looks like, understand our Father's relationship with us, and then what if I fall offline? You know, what if I get in trouble? I'm going to go to Proverbs uh, chapter 12, and this is just kind of a, uh, kind of a well, it's an earthly example, but um, it underscores the need. Wow, does it ever underscore the need for discipline in our society? Terrible, right? Absolutely terrible. Chapter 12, and I'm going to go to verse 24. 
That's not right. It's Proverbs chapter 13 and verse 24. It says, he who spares his rod hates his son. He who loves him will discipline him promptly. If we don't discipline our kids, we're gonna, we're, we must not love them very much. If you're not giving them ready for an employer that says, hey, Dale, go and do that, and you're like, I'm going to go do what I want to do, right? It's not going to work out for you very well in the world. We are setting kids up for failure to live at life when they can't take something simple that we tell them to do and do it. When we're raising Evan, what was he, like two or three, and I told him to stop? If we're, if we're walking along a sidewalk and I told him stop at two or three, he would stop dead on. And I wanted that kid to listen because someday that could mean his life. Could. And if he always just kind of goes on as you're saying stop, you're not setting a good precedent. Right? That's the way we need to be. God is all about discipline. Let's look at, look at Hebrews chapter 12. <clears throat> Twelve and verse five says, "My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by Him. For whom the Lord loves, He chastens, and scourges every son He receives. If you endure chastening, God uh, deals with you as sons. For what son is there? Is it chasten or chasten? I always get them screwed up. Chasten, chasten. Okay, good. Son, is there the father's does not chasten? But if you are without chastening." of which all have become partakers, and you are illegitimate and not sons. If God is not disciplining you in your life, be afraid. If God is not disciplining you in your life, be afraid because you're not a son, you're not a daughter. Right? We need that in our life. We need the testing. We need the trials. Look at, cha look at James chapter 1. We need this stuff, and we should be praying for it. And uh, Diane says, be careful, you know, Diane Randy, you know, Diane always says, be careful praying for patience. And <laughs> she's absolutely right, but she knows this too. We got to pray for patience and we got to pray for the times that are going to bring us lessons and discipline and patience. Look at chapter one and verse two. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. Yes, trial, right? So awesome. And it's great when we fall into trials. If you have the right outlook, because that's the disciplining, that's the training of God, right? That's, when we fall into trials and we come into a time of testing, stop for a minute, back up and go, how can I make this redeemable for God? Redeemable, right? How can I make this profitable to learn what he wants me to learn? I hate this trial, but how can I turn it into something that's joyful because God is training me right now? How can I do that? That's why it's joyful, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. Let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. That's what God does for us. Let's take a look at, and we don't have to endure chastening all the time. There are certain lessons, I mean, if somebody could tell you about patience all day long, <laughs> you're not going to get it until you've been through that trial, and you actually understand Woo, that took patience, right? That was like, wow, like, you know, going to Bible study with Marge, whoo, you know, that takes, that takes patience, you know, and you, you know, it's okay, Marge, it's fine. So let's take a look at Second uh, uh, Timothy, chapter 3 and verse 16. If you don't want all the disciplining, 
if you want discipline and trial to be about really emboldening your character and giving you a real world rubber meets the road knowledge on what it means to be patient or what it means to be kind, etc., then go here. Second uh, Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 says, All scripture is given by inspiration of God, is profitable for doctrine, that is teaching, for reproof, even reproving ourselves, right? We see ourselves in the scripture sometimes, and we don't align with it, and it convicts us. For correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. We can be complete in our character if we would just open up the word of God and just read it. That's all you got to do is just read it. You may not even understand everything that it's saying, but if you can understand that you're supposed to be nice to people, that's a start. <laughs> that we're supposed to be patient, that's good. Be patient. And I guarantee if you're nice with people and patient, you're going to undergo trial. And you're going to learn what that means and what that looks like. Let's go to Hebrews chapter 4. How many of you have read the Word of God and been convicted? <laughs> have any not been convicted? Just raise your hand. We'll talk together afterwards. Chapter 4, Hebrews. So let's look at uh, 12. It says, For the Word of God is living and powerful. Have you ever read an instruction manual to read, a, you know, how to build a table or a new CD rack or something like that? Is it living and powerful? Is it like, that really gets me right here. You know, it doesn't. And there's a lot of literature that I read about uh, self-discipline, about how to live your life, uh, how to be successful at your job, all that stuff. It doesn't hit here. It doesn't, it doesn't hit inside. It gives me maybe the skills I need to be a better salesman or a better employer it doesn't give me the skills I need to be a better son of God. And there's something about this word, and God says this about creation too. When we look at creation, it says even the carnal man, he convicts him inside that he did that. There's something about looking at what God has done, what God has formed, what God has said, that it hits us in here. That's why this is the word of God. That's why it's living and powerful is because when we read it, it convicts us inside, right? Take a look at chapter 12, it says, or chapter 4, verse 12. For the word of God is living and powerful. Yes, it is. It convicts us, right? It motivates us. It's sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit. Do you guys know where to cut that line? We find a really skilled surgeon that could divide between soul and spirit, right? We can't. But it gets, it gets right, right in there. And of the joints and the marrow, and is a discerner, of the thoughts and intents of the hearts. I might be thinking I need to go help this person, but my intent is completely off. Jesus said do something out of a, a, a one-heart motive, right? Don't be double-minded, James says. And what this meant is meant to align your intentions with your thoughts and actions, right? Right? I may want to think I want to go help out in church, but my intent is only to look good as a Christian. I should be going out to help out in church because I want to love these people. Those are the right intents. That's where the, God, the word of God can get. 
The word of God can divide all the way down into what we intend versus what we think. And when we find those things out of line, we bring them into alignment. That's the discipline of God, right? So his character we view, his relationship we live within and we live out to others. And his discipline is really about just digging into the word of God, letting him affect our heart, taking on those spiritual fruits, marching with the spirit. If you're going to march with that spirit, you are going to go into a spiritual war. You will have trial. You're going to have hard times. And if you keep that line, if you tow that line, if you march with his army, you're going to find out where the rubber meets the road. Let's look at our father's faithfulness. Romans chapter 11, verse 29. You ever told your kids you'd do something and you didn't do it? Mine is the PlayStation. My kid's like, let's play It Takes Two, Dad, this evening. I'm like, yeah. There's been times where I've missed that, and uh, I'm okay with that. (laughs) I'm okay with that in a lot of ways. I don't want to play that game. But the other side of me is we've got to live up to our words, right? We have to live up to our words, and that's part of the Father's faithfulness. Look at Romans chapter 1 and 11 and 29. He says, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable right? They cannot be altered even by God himself. That's why, that's why uh, when, when God was talking to Abraham, he says, I'm going to bring you a seed. And through that seed, the Messiah is what he's in, in, in essence saying, the Messiah is going to come through that seed. And that Messiah is going to bless the entire earth, not only your family, but every family in the earth. And Abraham's looking to this promised son. And he's like, this is going to be amazing. And God's like, this is everything your promised son is going to do. He's going to have families. There's, there's going to be amazing things springing out of him. And he says, Abraham, go and put him to death. But God, your word is irrevocable. How am I going to put Isaac to death? If God's, the way Abraham reasons here is if God's word is irrevocable, it cannot be changed, then if I sacrifice my son Isaac, I know God has to raise him from the dead because God will not go back on his promise. That was the reasoning of Abraham. Can you imagine if your kids thought that about you? If my dad said that, it can't be changed. He'll do it. Imagine if they could have that kind of trust, right? Let's take a look at uh, Ephesians chapter 1. And all, your, uh, all you baptized champions out there going for your fifth or sixth or seventh baptism, <laughs> this is for you. This one's for you. Our God is faithful. Our God's promise is irrevocable. And there's a lot of times where as Christians... In our relationship with God, we look back on things and we go, I don't know if I was faithful when I got baptized, so I probably should be baptized again. I should probably recommit again and again and again because who I am now is not who I was then. Even though the commitment of your heart is the same as it was back then, your head knowledge might not be, or maybe you're just in doubt about where you are with God. And that's where we have to go back and revisit that relationship of them not imputing sin. He does not impute it. 
And look at in uh, Ephesians chapter 1, and verse 13, it says, In him you also trusted, we can trust him, after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also you have believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. We know that in line with baptism, God's means to convey that he's regenerating you, putting you to death and raising you up to new life. He's giving you his spirit at that point. And you can trust, like it says in 13, that that happened. And he's saying, believe that it happened. In verse 14, it says, the spirit is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession. That's why he gave us the spirit is that's the down payment. His gifts and calling are irrevocable. If you're in, you're in. You're never out of relationship with him, right? We just keep our eyes focused on him, believe in his goodness, believe in his faithfulness. And I want to go to Hebrews chapter 13, because this, when we talk about God's uh, irrevocable promises, and a lot of times, if you guys ever read about this, it's called God's immutability. God is unchanging, right? He's unchanging. Look at Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 5. Let your conduct be with, without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have, for he himself said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And you're not going to see this in the Greek here, but the Greek actually has five negatives in this verse. That means no, not, never. Five negatives. It's translated like this in English because it's translated like this a lot, mainly in the Old Testament. So if God says something once, is he going to do it? If he says something, does he have to say, I promise? If he says it, it's irrevocable. If he said, I'm never going to leave you or forsake you, is that good as done? And here he says, I will never, 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 never leave you. That's amazing. Irrevocable God saying that. And it's to bolster your confidence that he's always with you. He's never going to back out. That's an amazing God, right? Amen? That's our Father. And God wants us to be like him. He wants us to carry that same character that takes time for us, doesn't it? that same relationship, that same discipline into our world. Don't you want that discipline for yourself? Do you? Do you want to be that kind of discipline, that kind of relationship with God that when you walk through trial, he's teaching you something? Thank God for that, right? That's the kind of same discipline we want for our children. If you're not letting your children pay the price for something done wrong when they're kids, you're going to let them pay that price when they're adults. I used to tell Evan, we're walking through Home Depot, and I said, hey, turn around, look where you're going, look where you're going, look where you're going. And finally, I said, you know what? I'm going to let him walk right into something. And he walked right into a steel pole. Wham! Amen. You know, he learned his lesson, right? <laughs> life is the great teacher, right? And we have, to be, we have to expose our kids to life, but we have to expose our kids to a father that cares, right? The same heavenly father let, his, let that, the prodigal son go out and eat out of a pig trough, let him learn his lesson and let him come back. Open relationship, right? Come on back. 
Some of us aren't fathers. And for mothers, I mean, this day applies to you too. It's the same exact thing, right? It applies to all of us. Some of us don't have kids, but in Timothy, it says for the younger people in church to treat elder, elderly people or older men as their fathers. Older men to treat younger men as their sons. We're all family in some way. Father's Day is something the world kind of drummed up because it'd be like, yeah, you're a dad, good job, you know, and that's great. If you do, if you do it right, it's great, right? But for us, we're all family. We're all family. We're all fathers of someone. And if you're not a father of someone, you can be of someone in this church, right? So let's just pray about that today. Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your character. We thank you for the relationship that you've given to us. The freedom that we have in you, Lord, is amazing. And I'd ask that you just discipline us, teach us your love, teach us how to walk circumspectly, teach us how to be faithful in everything that we do. And Father, we know that as you set up everything good in the beginning, so you're preparing a place for us now and you have been for the last 2,000 years. We just pray that we're good stewards of the families that we've been given. In Jesus' name, amen.